So we're um, continuing with uh, our talks from Taming the Mind. Who all was here last month when Venerable Children talked about this? Yeah, it was a great talk. I listened to it the other day. I wasn't here, but um, she had um, one and a half pages of a chapter called Buddhist Traditions Finding What Suits Us. And she spent a lot of time uh, comparing kind of different which is great because I have something like 15 pages <laughs> on comparing these um, different kinds of practices. So she covered so much that I'm happy that people were here because she knows a whole lot more than I do. A whole, whole, whole lot. In these 15 or so pages, she has packed more historical detail and more kinds of facts about these different kinds of uh, traditions than I can possibly retain in my head. So know that this will be a general presentation. <laughs> and if you haven't read these two chapters, it would be, um, I think, beneficial to do so. So uh, let's uh, take a few minutes to just, um, again, do a little bit of breathing meditation so that we bring our minds back to the hall and, uh, and reconnect with each other in that meditative space. Reset our motivation for the day. Just bring our attention to being um, grateful for the opportunity to come together, to explore the Buddha's teachings together. We live in a time and place where um, right here there's no violence that would prevent us from getting here. There's no major natural disaster immediately here that prevents us from getting here. We're not dodging the law. It's not illegal to gather. It's not illegal to speak of religions in this way. And we're physically and mentally well enough to come and share in this experience. And just, you know, this is not true for every being on this planet right now. And for those who might even have a desire, they all don't all have a place to go that's right up the river. So we can rejoice really in all of these things that are going for us. And really make a determination to make the best use of our time together today to work to understand the very nature of our situation, to develop our good qualities as far as we can, thereby mitigating the afflictions that arise in our minds. And to do that with a wish to completely develop our potential. 
into full awakening so that we can lead every other being out of suffering and to that same state. Let's use that this time in that way. So I wanted to um, to be able to just do the sharing because I wanted to do um, I wanted to study this a little bit and do some research on this topic. I was thinking of, like, when I was preparing, it's like, why is it important to um, think about other Buddhist traditions and try to get a little bit of an understanding about the other Buddhist traditions? You know, why is that particularly valuable? Um, I know for myself, I uh, kind of was invited, I guess, to um, teachings. My Venerable Children was giving in Seattle, and I liked what I heard, and I didn't ever go anywhere else. So I was not one of those people who had lots of looking in many, many different places and looking at different traditions before I made my commitment to the Dharma. I just found one that really made sense to me and stayed. I don't know that I knew, I certainly didn't mean to commit this far, but, um, you know, it worked. (laughs) I didn't go looking. But I've also met people who have, you know, gone to so many different kinds of dharma teachings and dharma groups, kind of looking for where's the essence or where's the truth or what clicks for me. And um, that can be quite confusing. So I think from both sides of the, of the coin, it's very valuable to at least get an overview of um, what are the Buddhist traditions and really more importantly, where do they all come from? What's the seed of all of them? And, um, and to help uh, minimize the confusion a little bit and help us guide our minds into a place that's going to be most conducive for our practice. Um, you know, we have a unique opportunity here in the United States and in the West because traditions that existed thousands of miles apart from each other here are all in the same neighborhood. You know, in Spokane, we have several different Buddhist groups, uh, Tibetan Buddhist groups now. We have the Japanese Buddhist church that's been there since the 1970s. We have the Vietnamese temple that's been there for a while. We have Zen groups. We have uh, Insight Vipassana meditation groups. There's a Nichiren Shoshu group. And there's all these are Buddhist. But if you walked into every one of them, right on the surface, you might not be able to know that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they all have a different flavor. And, but they all come from the same source. And so if we begin to pay attention to what is that same source that they all have in common, then when we go um, visiting other temples and centers, it's a little bit easier to understand how they fit, what the relationship is. So that's the value, I think, of looking at it and looking a little bit at Buddhist history. So, um, in the beginning, of course, there weren't all these different groups. There weren't any different groups. There was just the Dharma (laughs) that the Buddha taught. So, you all know the story that um, now nearly 2,600 years ago, they think, by that reckoning, uh, certainly more than 2,500 years ago, the prince Siddhartha was born in uh, Kapilavastu and... uh, was raised up to be uh, a great king, but he also had the prediction at birth that he would either be a great king or a great uh, spiritual leader. And by uh, discovering the, um, the genuine pain and suffering of sickness, aging, and death, um, he was compelled by his great compassion to leave all of the luxury and all the yeah, all the luxury and privilege that he had in order to understand how these dreadful sufferings could be overcome. So he um, found great meditation masters with whom he studied, mastered their techniques, and these, although they led to certain levels of concentration, and I can imagine great bliss, that's what comes with those, right? But 
they did not lead to the liberation completely overcoming the cycle of birth, which leads to sickness, aging, and death. So he went, uh, continued his search, spent some years, six years, doing deeply ascetic practices, looking for a way to overcome these, discovered that this too didn't work, um, and then taking some nourishment, he sat down beneath the Bodhi tree and vowed again out of his compassion not to get up until he had achieved this understanding of how to overcome these things, and so he did. He saw the nature of reality, he saw what causes our predicament, he saw, um, well, he saw what our predicament is, he saw what caused it, he saw that there was a way to, that it could be ceased, and that there was a way to do so. And after a time, he began to teach. So that's where it all began in this era, um, in this age. So um, at the time of the Buddha, um, you know, there was, uh, it was a tradition in India that there was spiritual teachers who wandered and taught, and so he taught whoever was there, whoever was in front of him. He taught to their specific uh, situation, their specific condition, and all of it was based in this understanding of this nature of reality. All of it was, was uh, everything he taught was with the goal that um, we be able to realize the nature of reality ourselves and overcome the uh, um, afflictions and the actions that we do based on those afflictions that keep us perpetuating in this cycle of birth, which inevitably, irreconcilably, <laughs> irrevocably leads to sickness, aging, and death and all the mental sufferings uh, and the physical sufferings that we experience in between. So, as Venerable explained quite um, uh, clearly last time too, the Buddha's teachings then spread even during the course of his lifetime. Um, There were among his disciples many very ripe for awakening um, uh, students whose minds became completely purified at the time that they were the Buddha's disciples. Their minds were very clear, very brilliant. And their capacity to memorize these Buddhist teachings were, was like far beyond anything I personally can imagine. But they did commit these teachings to memory, and then the teachings, even during his life, began to spread. It wasn't just the Buddha who was teaching them. Some of his disciples were already spreading them throughout India. Um, shortly after his uh, Parinirvana, there was a gathering of these disciples, and they recited various of them recited different sections of the teachings that they committed to memory and all agreed, yes, this is what he taught. And so that was the beginning of the foundation of you know, what, we've, what we know today. Um, about a hundred years later, there was some question about whether people were still sticking to the things as they had agreed. So they had another council where they came together, recited them together again. And the second Buddhist council, they again agreed. These are the teachings. And so these pure teachings upon which they all agreed continued to spread. Um, there was a third council during the reign of King Ashoka, Ashoka, who was the first king throughout India. He really um, made quite a broad kingdom and then converted to Buddhism and established what was um, for the first time kind of the state religion in a way of really ruling according to the principles of the Dharma and then also um, uh, sharing and even sending missionaries. So he sent uh, his son and one of his daughters, one was a monk, the other was a nun, to Sri Lanka, um, where they established the Theravadan tradition there. Um, And so the spread began to go throughout all through Sri Lanka, throughout all of Southeast Asia, then eventually um, the teachings began to spread north into China and then Korea, Vietnam, uh, then to Japan, then much later from India up into Tibet. I'm just going to bring a map over here because it's kind of cool to see the, the way it spreads out like that. And so this was over thousands of miles and actually over about a thousand years. From the time the Buddha taught, which is like 5th, 6th century BC. BCE, to um, the time it first went to Tibet, which is around 7th century or 
something like that. It's a thousand years. So the course, so the course of thousands and thousands of miles, thousands and thousands of years. Even though these teachings were um, uh, quite, uh, I want to say, codified in a way, you know, over and over and over, it was reasserted that these are the teachings of the Buddha. There were so many of them that you can easily emphasize different parts or different aspects. You can see how that would be, um, how things could not change but be emphasized as they went to different places in different countries. So, as Venerable said in, in, in the book, it's, it's changed by climate made a difference in what was emphasized in the various teachings, the various dispositions of people was emphasized. Yeah. What about linguistic translations? Yeah, also, that was an issue. That was definitely an issue. And the, the, um, the basic, once the teachings were written down, they were written down during the, um, in Sri Lanka, about 100 years after Ashoka, I think. I have to look for it here, but... They were written down in Pali. And that tradition um, continued to teach and chant in Pali. But around 100, about 100 years before the end of the Common Era and then going up to Nargajuna's time, which is the 3rd century, is when the Mayana teachings began to appear. And part of that tradition is that they were actually translated into the local language more. So this also certainly had an effect on, on how the how the teachings were practiced in various parts of the um, various parts of the world. So over this time, there emerged these two principal schools um, that Venerable Trajan addresses in these chapters: the um, ter- well, the fundamental vehicle, um, which had eighteen schools. Now only one exists, and that's the Theravada tradition. And then the Mahayana vehicle. Um, you could say that the Theravada is also sometimes called the southern tradition because it's those southern countries that particularly took it, Sri Lanka and Burma and you know, that whole Thailand, that whole area. And the Mahayana are called the northern tradition because it's the, the northern countries, the Himalayas, China, uh, Korea, Vietnam, that roughly, although in all these different areas, you could also find practitioners of the other and so she talked a lot about the differences in these two practices. And I think that's uh, um, looking at kind of the fundamentals of those gives us the groundwork for understanding all the subsets. Um, so like if we look at our Spokane groups, um, the Japanese Buddhist church is a Pure Land church. That's a Mahayana tradition. All of the Tibetan groups down there are all Mahayana traditions. Um, the Vietnamese temple is a Mahayana tradition. The uh, Zen group is a Mahayana tradition. Um, I think some of the, the insight meditation groups or the Vipassana groups that are sitting there, they're coming more from the Theravada side. Um, but even so, you look at all those four different Mahayana groups, they look quite different on the surface but they all have a same kind of fundamental premise that's the same. So, first of all, um, they are all, and all Buddhist traditions across the board are based on the Four Noble Truths, the Four Noble Truths that we just elaborated, right? The uh, understanding or the, the Tridukkha, realizing that our situation here is unsatisfactory, it is not all beautiful all the time. Um, and there's more subtle levels. It's not just that we have gross pain. It's not just that we break our wrists, break our legs, get sick and die. But, um, or that we have mental suffering. You know, that we're wracked by grief when we, are, when we lose the things that we love and things like that. But there's the second level of suffering that, or dukkha that we call the dukkha of change, which is what we really... Um, experience as pleasure in our ways. Uh, Why would that be unsatisfactory? Well, I don't think we really have to look too deeply to see that what we experience as pleasure, A, doesn't last, that we're constantly craving for it, chasing after it, but it's never sufficient. There's that aspect of it. And then there's the other aspect that I was just thinking about as I was, you know, studying out here sitting in the sun, 
feeling so wonderful and happy that I was sitting in the sun and realizing that if I sat there much longer, I was going to get sunburned, miserable, and if it continued to be sun beating down on me, I would eventually get completely dehydrated and die, actually. <laughs> I thought, this is really the Duke of Change. <laughs> Here I am grasping after the sunlight, and yet yeah, that's the truth. If I had stuck with it, would it be continually happy? No. No. So even the things we call happiness are not. And then the third, more subtle level of that true suffering, true dukkha, is that we have bodies and minds that are completely under the control of our karma and uh, afflictions. And anything, (laughs) suffering happens moment by moment by moment. So that understanding underlies all Buddhist schools. The second truth, then, is that there's a cause for this. It's not random. It's not laid out by, it's not decreed by some creator. Um, But that there are specific causes for the fact that we have this this unsatisfactory condition. And what are they? They're principally our um, our afflicted states of mind, um, the emotions that are disturbing emotions, that come from the most basic one is our ignorance of how things truly exist grasping at things to exist in a way that's uh, different from the way they actually appear. Then the desire that rises out of that, that propels us to to create actions that then leave little traces on our mind streams that then ripen again in more difficulties, more suffering, more uh, habitual behavior. So this cause, just one feeds after another, after another, after another. But it's not random. And because there is a cause, and that's identifiable, the Buddha also taught that these can be removed. That these things are not um, like tied to our nature, but that they are uh, adventitious, arising on the basis of previous causes. Right, And so they can be removed. We can be completely free of these. And that there is a method, a path to do that. We can create these pathways in our own mind stream. So this is the foundation. Every single thing, Venerable Trajan says, everything the Buddha taught fits within these four truths. And the more we think about them, and, and uh, you know, the explanations and the teachings on them are vast, but the more familiar we become with that and really think about it and take it into our minds, the more we can see how all the pieces fit. All Buddhist traditions talk about karma, cause and effect, cause and result. They all talk about the fact that our, um, our actions have an implication that we experience again and again and again. They all talk about the um, truth of, um, of karma that positive actions or constructive virtuous actions lead to happiness and uh, destructive actions lead to suffering, pain. They all agree on that. All Buddhist traditions uh, talk about the importance of purifying our minds and the importance of accumulating merit or positive potential. So purifying purifying our negative actions and creating virtue that follows with karma, right? So they they all include that. They all talk about rebirth. So that's a fundamental understanding or principle that ties all of these Buddhist things together. And they all talk about love and compassion and forgiveness and kindness. Completely. So that's a, a, a tie for all of them. They all talk about understanding selflessness and letting go of clinging to a false notion of the self. So none of them accepts the... I mean, they all refute the fact that, that how it appears to us is that there's some sense of self that's permanent, that's... Um, kind of monolithic, (laughs) unchanging. Um, There's some essential me. And all Buddhist traditions actually refute that that's not so. That that, yeah, that that's not so. That we project that based on our perception of our mind and body. So what then is the difference? (laughs) What's the what's the big difference? There is a, um, a quote that I think Venerable used it. I'm not sure where I got this, but there was a Chinese monk who visited India in the 7th century. And he was talking about the difference between the Mahayana, Mahayanists and the fundamental vehicle practitioners. So that's 
you know, quite late, actually, 7th century. And he said, both adopt the same Vinaya, so they're both practicing the same ethical code. They have in common the prohibitions of the five offenses, so they all have the same five basic um, precepts, uh, lay precepts, and also the practice of the four noble truths. So those are the same, according to this monk. Those who venerate bodhisattvas and read the Mahayana Sutras are called Mahayanists, while those who do not perform these are called the Hinayanas, or the lesser vehicle. That was the only distinction, according to him. If you read the Mahayana Sutras and you follow the Bodhisattva ideal, then that's what makes you different. So over time, there became kind of, it seems, <laughs> there became bigger splits. But Venerable has said this recently too, that it seems like the scholars have, are saying now that the, everybody practiced together in India and might have debated these things, but um, there wasn't any real kind of split or difference in these two forms of practice. So, um, what's the issue about then? It seems that it boils down to, um, in many ways, it boils down to what they think of uh, in terms of the goal. What's possible? You know, what's the basic nature? And, um, and then the purpose of the practice. So the purpose or goal of Theravada practice is to become free from the cycle of endless suffering and rebirths and to attain nirvana, to become an arhat. Okay? I mean, that's exactly what the Buddha was looking for, right? To overcome these things. Um, nirvana is a blissful state and which will no longer take rebirth under the influence of afflictions and karma. And then after death, those people who have attained liberation single-pointedly meditate on reality and abide in peace with unceasing happiness forever. One Theravada view is that once that has happened, then there's the consciousness no longer compelled by karma becomes extinct. It's the complete extinction of that consciousness. It's not, I don't understand, it's not held by all Theravadans, but uh, that's kind of the basic philosophy that goes there. So people who wanted to attain nirvana, who want to overcome that suffering, they take refuge. They practice the lay precepts. And in the Theravada tradition, a real key to attaining that liberation is to ordain and live as a monastic. It's really very kind of critical to being able to do that. The Mahayana, on the other hand, um, Mahayana means the great vehicle. And it refers to the path of seeking complete enlightenment for the benefit of all sentient beings. So the goal is a little bit different. The motivation is a little bit different. Um, the Mahayana tradition holds that, you know, just just holding as a goal the suffering of your own relief, I mean, the, the uh, practice of trying to, to, to gain your own release from suffering and to attain nirvana is a little bit narrow that it, you know, it kind of leaves the whole rest of the population out. And so it is uh, with the idea that by um, developing bodhicitta, the aspiration to benefit all living beings, and therefore to purify your mind so completely that you become an omniscient Buddha so that you can benefit them, that is the goal of the Mahayana practice, of all the Mahayana practices. So that, that kind of keys into a little bit, well, definitely, a definite different belief in what's the potential of sentient beings. So from the Theravada point of view, they believe that um, a, only a certain number of Buddhas can occur. That there will be a thousand Buddhas in this age, and that those beings have the, the capacity, the karma, the merit, to completely purify their minds, turn the wheel of dharma, teach the dharma, and share with other beings. All the rest of us have the seeds to become uh, liberated for sure, but that we just don't have the capacity really to become a Buddha. So the liberation uh, from suffering is the highest goal that most of us can achieve. This is Theravada. That's Theravada. 
belief. So if that's your view, then of course you want to be an arhat. That's as far as you're going to go. They have um, they have the same emphasis on lo- the, you know, the four measurables is a very important part of the um, Theravadan practice, actually. You know, may all sentient beings have happiness and its causes. May all sentient beings be free of suffering and its causes. May all sentient beings not be separated from sorrowless bliss. May all sentient beings abide in equanimity, just like we you know, chanted this morning or recited this morning. It's a part of the Theravada practice, but it's looked at a little bit differently because uh, they don't have the view that all sentient beings could actually become Buddhists. They have the view that all sentient beings have the capacity to become arhats. So the thousand are, um, that would become Buddhists the limited number, are, are they predetermined? It seems so. It seems so. They're already bodhisattvas and they're on the, in the wheel. They're on the wheel. Whereas for, yeah? Um, is there anywhere that they might have gotten this idea, like from one of the sutras, or where does it come from that we think there's only a thousand? Oh, you know, there, there's, um, I mean, we have the same, same source, about a thousand Buddhas of this age that will turn the wheel of dharma, that will be founding Buddhas that um, like start a new tradition again, just like Shakyamuni Buddha. Yeah, so, so I don't know what the source of the thousand Buddhas is. Did it's anybody? But it is in both traditions. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, it's one of the, the clear, clear teachings in both traditions. But in the Mahayana tradition, they think that those thousand will be turning wheel turning Buddhas, but there's, ev- you know, everybody has the potential to also become Buddhas, and that there are many more. And also in the Mahayana tradition, then there's the belief that you know, once you become a Buddha, if you've spent eons purifying your mind to get there, going extinct seems kind of um, limited. Yes, <laughs> kind of a waste of centuries. So that that consciousness continues um, to benefit living beings because that's its purpose. So that's quite different. Yeah. Um, let me just add that um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, you know, who translated much of the Pathakanon and deep understanding of all this, he said once about that, um, that idea that the consciousness extinguishes. Mm-hmm. There really wasn't much said about it. Mm. He also said that about. Um, um, well, I remember we were talking to him once about well, what's the difference between like the Buddha and the Arhats, mm-hmm. you know, because they have different qualities in the Pali tradition. But you know, I think they didn't. What he said is they didn't write extensively about what about that subject. They really just wrote extensively about becoming an Arhat. And so um, I think that's kind of important to know that. You know, not much was said about you know this extinction. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It is important to know because even venerable, I, I kind of went to some of her oral teachings on this very point, and mm-hmm. and and it is. I mean, it's one of the things that that I think is commonly thought of, but I don't know where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you're actually right in exactly that some of the Theravada traditions held the belief and some didn't. He just clarified that, you know, there wasn't a whole lot said about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In a poly yeah. And so, you know, very simplistically, because I cannot at all say that I have a deep understanding of this, but the real difference is that for, um, to become, to purify our minds, so that, so that, so that the, the goals are, are similar, but to purify our minds, to eliminate the afflictions, um, and to achieve liberation is one level of kind of purifying and cultivating our good qualities. But what remains in the mind of an arhat is um, what they call the uh, stains, or kind of like the traces of memory, I suppose, is a way you can think of it, of having seen uh, um, true existence for so, so, so long. that the appearance is still there. They know better, they know the nature of reality, but um, the appearance of true existence is still there for them. And they don't really have the, um, the, a deeper penetrating wisdom that can go through those stains to be able to have an omniscient mind that uh, overcomes 
those obscurations to omniscience. Whereas a Buddha, um, using the Bodhisattva path, cultivating tons and tons and tons and tons and tons more merit, um, developing a wisdom that sees the nature of reality from many, many, many different angles, goes much deeper and completely removes those obscurations from the mind as well. So that they have far more um, capacity, far more capacity, to be able to benefit beings, manifest infinite bodies, understand minds, and so forth, and so forth, and so forth, so that they can really have the skill, it's impeccable skill, to um, see the past, present, future, to know people's uh, dispositions, things like that, that makes it very possible for these Buddhas to benefit us all the time, whether we even know it or not, whether we're aware of it or not. Um, and certainly, primarily, what, they're, what the way the Buddhas benefit us is by um, teaching the path to liberation, all the paths, all the paths to liberation and enlightenment. So those are the principal difference between the two. So as far as kind of a, a view of what our potential is, that is quite a big difference, quite a big difference. So from the very beginning, um, the motivation of the Mahayana schools, we learn that our goal is to attain Buddhahood for the benefit of all sentient beings. And we begin every, in the Tibetan tradition, we begin every practice, every session with that goal to try to establish um, that uh, motivation so strongly that that's what's propelling us to do our practice. And so that's different. It's a different different motivation from the the Theravadins. Question? Yeah. Um, The Theravadins, is it possible that their goal ultimately indirectly is is similar or the same in that perhaps they, they focus more on um, attaining enlightenment individually, um, assuming that this, because of an interconnectedness, this will eventually um, create an enlightenment of the whole, the, a universal, we're all one organism. Yeah, so my understanding is no. no that um, uh, it's really quite a different view. Mm-hmm. And they'd say the story goes that ultimately, and this is from the Mahayana point of view, of course, that ultimately the Buddha eventually tips, taps all these little arhats who are in their meditative bliss on the shoulder and says, uh, there's more work to do, <laughs> and kind of gets them on the path. But they actually have, it takes longer, because they have to, um, although they have realized the nature of reality, they have to begin again with the, um, creating the merit mm-hmm. to um, practice the bodhisattva path. So, so and venerable children shared, you know, off, I think we've talked about this before, and people thinking, you know, how could you not have the view to be, to wish to benefit all beings? How could you not have that? But she said when she went to Thailand, she really um, experienced very good monastics, very kind, very clear people practicing earnestly for liberation who did not have the view that they could benefit all living beings. Arhats, is that a term, term that's more prominent in the term versus the... The term isn't necessarily more prominent, but, the, but that is the name of the goal okay. in the Theravada tradition. So we talk about arhats too, but... Okay. Does that help? Yeah. I was going to say that it's, to me, it, the way I kind of think of it is because the Theravada tradition has the Bodhisattva path. It mentions it. They're aware that they mention it. But I have a feeling it's still one of those things where not much was said. It's considered to be too difficult. And, and, and sort of all the teachings and the emphasis are on nirvana. But they, they talk about it. But I don't think it's elucidated very much. It's kind of yeah, and it's and, it, and if so, and if the Theravada and stuff is the practices are all based on the Pali Canon, and it's not wasn't written down in that thing, then they wouldn't be going very far with it. Yeah, I mean, if you didn't have the practices, why would you? you right. Know, it's considered too difficult, and then that part about only so many people can do this. Then yeah, if you used to get liberated. And also, one of the interesting things in reading Ajahn Mun's biography, who was a great Thai meditator, 
there's this little thing mm-hmm. that, um, this little scene where somebody from his past shows up, and um, uh, they, uh, she's kind of missing him. Is she a ghost? They were together. Yes, they, they were. were. Friends and they had made an agreement that they would help each but, other to reach nirvana. But was she alive when she came to him, or was she come to him she as a spirit? Like a, a spirit? I think she was a spirit. But anyway, yes, Venerable Tarp is right. They had made an agreement that they were going to become Buddhas, that they were going to go all the way to enlightenment together. And she was heartbroken because he had kind of bailed on their agreement and had decided to become an arhat and he, uh, because it was faster and more, you know, it was more immediate, he did. more expedient. And that's what he did, they say, in this lifetime. So, so you know, we hear, from in, the, in the Tibetan tradition, we hear so much how important it is to develop this motivation to attain enlightenment because it takes a whole lot longer, like eons, longer if you do the sutra path, um, you have to have a tremendous amount of merit to do it. So it's very, I can see that it would be very easy to get kind of close, easily to, easy to get distracted and go, well, I'm sorry for all sentient beings, but I'm sick of this, I'm gone. You know, and so, uh, yeah, I, I, I can imagine now, as I've really been looking at that and listening to that story from Ajahn Mun, I can see how there would be a mind that would be um, more compelled for their own liberation, even though they care very much. It is a huge part of the Theravada practice to develop love and compassion, loving kindness. It, I've, I've, I've seen this emphasis um, that the Theravadans would, I guess, some of them know what we say. Um, it sounds a lot like um, modern day lingo for maintaining healthy boundaries in um, some of the some of the mantras in maintaining healthy boundaries would be when I work on me you get better so perhaps focusing on me and, and um, having really good boundaries not entering into an investment or golf network kind of abdicate responsibility for yourself and divest yourself for the good of the other person gets way out of whack. Um, so has that ever been addressed with the Mahayanas, um, this, this um, concept of, of being so focused on the other that you um, get distracted or unable to care for yourself? spiritual, mentally, help, you know, emotionally, socially, and all these different dimensions, so that you really are, um, um, in some way distracted or inhibited from actually doing the, uh, being a positive. Yeah. Um, yeah, I understand what you're saying. See what I'm saying? It's yeah, like, so I don't know that it's addressed in the teachings, but I do know that it's addressed in, um, by our teacher. <laughs> And by many of the Western teachers, because it's a, it's a big, uh, I think, a big easy misunderstanding among Western practitioners. I don't know if that's true in Asia so much. But the real thing that we're guided to look at is what about the, the clarity, and I dare say the purity, of our motivation. Mm-hmm. So often, um, when we're striving beyond our capacity to try to help, when we're um, blindly giving without caring for ourselves, Mm -hmm. our motivation appears to be concern for the other. But underneath, there's probably something else. Oh, feeding the self-ego. Yeah, like, I want to be, I need to be loved. Mm -hmm. I need to be valued. I need to be know that somebody cares about me. I need my life needs to be worth something. Good point. Good point. Yeah. 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 And and I think many of us here have really looked at that over and over and over as our as our motivating factor for being a benefit. And it's very tricky. It's very tricky. But the true, if we were truly, truly, truly um, looking out for the benefit of all living beings, then we would be cultivating the strength of our own mind to have greater and greater capacity so that, uh, and it's not coming from that need at all, but it's coming from a genuine, mm-hmm. genuine wish to overcome our own self-centered thought and be a parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So uh, it takes a lot of self-examination, I think, and, and alertness, especially at our level, <laughs> mm-hmm. to make sure that we're, um, our motivation is clear. Mm-hmm. Mike? Is there a concept uh, in Theravadan of bodhicitta? No. I mean, is there a concept of bodhicitta? I don't know. But is that their goal? No. No, is that the motivation that they're working for? I know they do all kinds of, they believe in compassion and they're they're loving and kind to to all sentient beings. I'm just wondering, is there a concept? Well, bodhicitta is predicated on um, being able to become a Buddha. So if if we don't, if I don't believe that I have the capacity to become a Buddha, then I'm not going to go there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's also... um, and I didn't read this recently, so I don't remember the details. Maybe Venerable Tarpa or somebody else does. But um, there is some thought in the Theravadan too that that not everybody can be liberated. Do you know that? Yeah, I don't know much. I just yeah, I don't. I don't have much to say except that I've heard that, but it, there's not based on anything. I do remember a Theravada monk though saying something one time that. Even though they, they don't have this, maybe that uh, maybe he just has a Mahayana concept. That mm-hmm. He basically he was talking about somebody else and said, "Oh, I don't believe any of this stuff." You know, I'll just go to hell. And he said, "If you go to hell, I'm going to get you." And that was a Theravada monk said that. And I said, "That's a bodhisattva." <laughs> Whether or not they have it in their the things he yeah. was saying. Yeah. 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 Like, well, Venerable Children also reminds us very frequently that um, uh, there's no thing, like there's nothing so solid in any of these. And that we may call ourselves Mahayanists because this is the school that we study, but really and truly, how pure is my motivation to be of benefit? <laughs> you know, as opposed to, you know, as opposed to a Theravada monk who might you know, on the surface be espousing a whole different philosophy, but who has a motivation that's very pure. We don't know. We don't know that. And I've heard Bhikkhu Bodhi say, a little bit defensively, I must say, um, in in defense of this Theravadan, um, well, sort of put-down feeling from the Mahayana perspective about the Theravadins, that the monks that he trained with um, were the most compassionate people he's ever met in the street, helping people every day. Their function where he trained was not Sri Lanka, Burma, or was he? Mm-hmm. Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. Um, their role in helping people on a day-to-day basis was huge. And far more, he said in that time, than he's seen anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So... And we'll say that too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The amount of compassion that you may see in Theravada might be greater than what you see in Mahayana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Hunter had something before we get to that. Yes. Uh, well, perhaps it is not that uh, not everyone can be liberated, but one must choose to be liberated, or at least start on that path. That is absolutely true from every perspective, from all Buddhist perspectives, whether whether we think everyone can be or not, nobody can do it for us. So there's no Buddhist view that says, you know, some Buddha can reach down and grab our consciousness and make us liberated, or they would have. All they want is for us to be free from this suffering. But we do have to do it ourselves. Absolutely. Aaron? I was just going to ask, uh, again, some of these are concepts that my brain has difficulty understanding. But, so from any of the traditions, is there the belief that someone could be working toward attaining Buddhahood and, and like, accidentally become an archon? Like, you didn't quite reach the goal, but you got close, so you're an archon? And does that... <laughs> <laughs> Question makes sense. No, it's a good question. I mean, the bodhisattvas are actually cultivating the very same um, cessations that the arhats are cultivating. 
they're working to eliminate the same afflictions from their minds, and they're and they're working to realize the nature of reality in the same way, although kind of broader, more broadly from many different angles. Um, but I don't know about ac- I mean <laughs> about accidentally becoming an arhat. You would have to just like bail from your commitment to continue on the bodhisattva path. I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, overcoming um, the afflictions, overcoming the round of rebirth, is part of the path of bodhisattva. They just keep going. It's, but it is two different roles. It's not like failing out on your comprehensives in your PhD program and handed a master's degree and shown the door. <laughs> yeah, two different, different goals. Two different, two different two, goals. Yeah. Different study. Yeah. So for the movie said the Tibetan Rajayana, you know, in that subset of Mahayana, they say you definitely have to have all three vehicles. In the sense of you have to, you have to get your bachelor's, you have to get your yeah. master's before you get your PhD. Yeah, you have to have, to have yeah. the fundamental vehicle uh, study. Mm-hmm. You have to have the Mahayana study. You have to have the Vajrayana study. And <laughs> so, say like that. It's always been, uh, right that it encompasses all encompasses three. All three. Mm-hmm. But you're heading off in that direction from the get-go. So I'm kind of bouncing off of Annie's first question, um, and this is where I always get with this, and I'm confused, because in both of these tra- traditions and all of these traditions, we undermine the sense of self and other. So I just don't understand how then this, I will free myself and not these others. How does how does it make it past that somehow? It's like we're we're doing meditations in the Mahayana and the Hinayana, undermining the sense of self and others, right? So how does this distinction just maintain itself all this way that there is a me and I'm going to say me, and there are these others and I'm not going to. Uh, bother myself with them. I always get to this place of how does this work? Is the question not clear? Is it because of the they don't go far enough with um, the dismantling of the self or the sense of self and others? I mean, like exchanging self for others. You know, I mean, Annie, it was like you know, there's these others, and I need to take care of, good care of myself, but we're always working with meditations to undermine that sense. I just think it's the motivation is what makes that difference. Both want to undermine sense of self, right. to be free, but the motivation to be free to do what? So for the Mahayanas to become a Buddha to then help all the others, and for the fundamental fundamental vehicle people to um, uh, rest in Nirvana. So it's about the, to me it's always about the goal and the motivation. Because what you build, then that's the result you get. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It just seems like if you, if you really, well, I just don't know enough to even be asking the question, but I'll say it like this, and I see now it's full of confusion, but if you're a really good Hinayanist and you undermine your sense of self, wouldn't you kind of end up being a Mahayana? <laughs> you have the motivation. Yeah, not if the goal wasn't there. Yeah, yeah. So no matter what your view is, you have to have the motivation that's separate from the view. Okay, that helps some. There's the view and the motivation. Okay. Because what they're removing... It's a little more clarity. Yeah. You know, what they're removing. So if, it, if the concept of inherent existence, but they're both removing that. You know, they only take it so far. And right. that's where, to me, the, I can understand the distinction easier is because 
you know, you have the obscurations to knowledge, obscurations right. to okay. They only mm -hmm. take it so far. And then right. what's left, that's, at one time they have that funny expression of, they have like the self-conceit of wanting to be liberated. Right. Yeah. You know, and that's, and so you have that, like those up. stains left, you know, you've cleaned the, okay. taken the onions out, and now you still have the smell left or something, yeah, yeah. so I say that. Okay. That's, yeah. And so that's that self, that's that self-centered thought. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that's so. That yeah. is a really hard question, yeah. you know. But, yeah. But it is. That's how it's been explained, and they even label it like the obscuration of wanting your own liberation. Yeah. And that's why Venerable has taught that, that when the Arhats, if indeed this story that Venerable Chin shared about the Buddha coming back and tapping them on the shoulders, mm -hmm. she did this in the. Mm -hmm. um, essence of refined gold and mm -hmm. mind training like rays of the sun, she says it's more difficult and it takes an arhat actually longer once they hit the path of accumulation because the self-centered thought, the subtle self-concern and self-conceit has been primed and has been mm -hmm. embedded so much in their minds that it's difficult for them to let go of the subtle, mm -hmm. you know, wanting to, to liberate themselves and that mm -hmm. it becomes an obstacle on the bodhisattva path. And it takes them longer because of that. Yeah. If you just started in the bodhisattva path. Yeah. Yeah. So which is why that twin attack, you know, going after the self-centered thought, actually is the first step <laughs> on the bodhisattva path. You know, and how how pow how powerful that is to actually, you know, enter the path. You have to work on those uh, meditations to just what you were talking about, exchanging self and others. It's not in the Theravada practice. Mm -hmm. okay. It's not attacking that self-centered thought. They're working on understanding um, selfishness self of self persons, right? Yeah. So I need to understand more about those two to help my own question. Mm -hmm. But thanks. Yeah, a good question. That is. Yeah. To keep yeah. Well, it's it's related to your question, and I, you know, because um, because it just seems so like an easy decision in a way, but um, as to who you would want to attain uh, enlightenment for, but um, it. I, I often wonder if it isn't because of the subtle differences in the um, definitions of emptiness that don't make it um, reasonable to think that um, it's a kind of a mind only or that the others are really um, a karmic illusion that isn't as real as we think and therefore we should uh, attain our own liberation because what we're seeing is confusion and we really don't know what others are experiencing. We don't know what... Is this making any sense at all? Or? I think so, but what I'm... But I think, if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is if you have kind of a view that everything is all an appearance or an illusion, then why would I bother to liberate all those illusions? Right. But actually, it's the um, Theravadan schools that hold the view that's really more substantialist than the mm -hmm. uh, than the Mahayana views. So it'd it's be less prone to that. Yeah, it'd be less prone to that. Prone to that yeah. Then yeah. More. yeah. There's a term and I don't quite remember exactly what it is, but it um, my understanding is that it describes the interconnectedness. Was it something like dependent arising or mm -hmm. something like that? Mm -hmm. Is, is that a major difference in the Mahayana and That's one of the fundamental similarities. Fundamental mm -hmm. similarities. Mm -hmm. So they do have a sense of interdependence. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And yet, and yet it's not part of the being Yeah. But it's not the interdependence of sentient being to sentient being. It's the dependent origination of how ignorance is the cause of karma, which is the cause of how the cycle of birth, aging, sickness, and death is a dependent arising. So they're focusing on a different... On the, on the how, to, how to liberate ourselves, and, and to find out, we have to find out how we got into this cycle in the first place. But dependent, that's dependent origination. Origination. Mm -hmm. Right. Dependent arising is when you get into the how things really exist, they're also dependent arisings. But then the interconnectedness of sentient beings, I'm not quite sure that that's a focus of the fundamental vehicle, where it is the Mahayana. That's where you break down the lack of equanimity, seeing the kindness of others, seeing you know, how all of us wish to, to be happy, not suffer. 
So I'm not quite sure whether that part, the interconnectedness, the kindness of mm -hmm. others and mm -hmm. things like that is a crucial piece of, you know, the liberation. Mm -hmm. So see, once again, there's, there's a semantics of what these, these dependent origination, dependent rising mean different things in different parts of the Buddhist teachings. Okay, and what I'm, I guess what I'm getting at is the focus of interdependence. Mm -hmm. And wondering if that is fundamentally the difference, um, or creating more of the difference between mm -hmm. them. I, mm -hmm. I don't think so. Because yeah. they both have the wheel of life, you know, they both use that, they both explain I guess there is some difference in how they explain that. I don't know what it is, but I've never been able to tell any of that. There's a slight difference, but it's not. But if they're not, if their role is not the uh, liberation of all sentient beings. That wheel of life doesn't explain it. It's just explaining how an individual gets out of samsara, which is the same for both. Mm -hmm. an arhat is out of samsara. Yeah, so, off the cycle. So your question is more about is the difference in the amount of teaching and reflection on the actual interconnectedness of each individual being with every other sentient being. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So that doesn't really have directly anything to do with the real life. Right. I mean, right. Does, of course, right. This is where the difference of what we're talking about when you're talking about dependent arising. You know. And the semantics. So I'm just. Well, I don't, I'm not familiar with the terminology. Yeah. yeah. Dependent arising and dependent origination are different. Really, no, they're no, basically they're the same. They're the same. They're the same. Different translations. Yeah. Different translations of the same term. But one of the things that His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, talks about very much, that Venerable Children echoes, is how um, different sentient beings, all sentient beings, have different dispositions and different propensities. And, so, and that's the value, actually, of the variety of religion in the world, not just the different kinds of Buddhism, but that um, because of kind of the, the propensities that we've cultivated in our minds, certain things appeal more to some people and certain things appeal more to others. So that, um, you know, the, the path of the, um, of the solitary realizers and hearers is, is uh, you know, a very valid spiritual practice and the practice of the bodhisattva vehicle um, all the way to Buddhahood is, is also. And some people are quite drawn to one and some people are quite drawn to, uh, to others. And the value to sentient beings of all of them is great. Mm -hmm. So uh, in some ways also sort of reconciling for ourselves. Well, they don't quite think the way I do, but good thing there's a vehicle. Yes. <laughs> good thing there's a vehicle for that, and then there's a vehicle for this too. And you know what Jindy says, it's a big Buddhist family. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and there, um, you know, this whole thing about loving kindness and so forth being so much a part of the practice, non-harming the very basic that's universal among all Buddhist practices. Erin, and then we're got to stop because we're over. Um, I was kind of thinking, wondering about the um, cultural aspect of the different traditions as well, and, and other people might know more about this than I do, but I remember hearing at some point about um, just different Asian cultures and language in particular, and that there were some Asian languages that didn't have even a, um, a direct translation to the word I or me. That, that it, there was a Chinese word for I is That it was more like we, like, a, like an all, like a we. There mm -hmm. wasn't like a talking of I or me. And so I wonder mm -hmm. if culturally, from my Western mm -hmm. mind, if I see those as so much more different to talk about my own personal enlightenment and then working toward the enlightenment of all if I had a language that was where I and self and me was more inclusive, maybe that would feel so mm -hmm. separate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there's the British, the royal we, which is the <laughs> <laughs> We shut up our tea now. And every being has a sense of I. <laughs> that's what we're trying to overcome. But yeah, yeah, I think you might be right if, if that's really true. Yeah. Well, there's, we didn't even get to the Pure Land and the zen tradition so now when venerable uh, or i think going will be here for the next talk is gets us into uh, tibetan buddhism and, you know, and the whole vajrayana thing um but there's 
we're small enough. We can keep this discussion going. It's quite juicy. And good. So let's sit just for a moment and uh, digest any key points that uh, you want to recall or bring back and study more about. Do the dedication verses, which are on page something. Oh, yeah, they're on the bushes. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious body mind not yet born arise and grow. May that born have no decline, but increase forever. 